God, we just want to say thank you. If you did nothing else from here to the end of eternity, you have done more than this. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. God, we thank you uh, that you meet with us, that we're more than, than two or three are gathered in your name, you're there with us. And so we trust that you're here in our presence, even in this moment. I pray, God, now as we turn to your word, that you would open our eyes to see, you would open our ears to hear, you would open our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. We thank you for your word. It is precious to us. We thank you that it teaches us about who you are and about what you have done. I pray that the truth of your word, I pray that the truth of your gospel would be communicated clearly in these moments and that we would not leave unchanged. I pray that this would be an encounter with you. I pray that you would speak through me in this moment, God. I pray that anything that I've prepared that's not from you, you will strike from my memory. And even if there is something I haven't prepared that is from you, I pray that you would give me the words in the moment. I pray that I wouldn't even be seen, but that you would be lifted up and magnified. We love you. It's a privilege to serve you and walk with you. We thank you for who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And you, if you want to clap, you can clap. But, but you don't have to if you don't want to. It is a lot of work getting the mask on and off with this microphone around my ears. I appreciate your patience. Uh, once again, my name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. We're so glad that you're with us and uh, so glad for those who are joining on the live stream as well. Uh, today's text is going to be in Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. If you've got a Bible, I'll give you a minute to get there. If you've got an app, I'll give you a minute to get there. Uh, and if you have neither of those, or you have them and you just don't want to use them, uh, we'll put it on the screen as well. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is what it says. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, can I share with you one of my, my most sincere fears as it relates to preaching in this church? I haven't had to worry about this for the last year, uh, but now that we're back here in person, it has renewed itself. Uh, one of my greatest fears when I am wearing this microphone is that sometime when we are worshiping and whoever the anointed worship leaders are, angelic songbirds up here who are leading us into the presence of God, they're singing and somehow my mic will not get turned off. Either I'll forget or our wonderful sound guys will forget. And I'll be singing, not now, when we're actually back to congregational singing. 
And in over the sound of the worship team will come the sound of a cat in the throes of death, which is the sound of me singing. I'm terrified of the hot mic. Terrified of it. You do not want to hear me sing. Uh, in 2006, President, then President George W. Bush was making some comments. He was making a speech on the one-year anniversary uh, of Hurricane Katrina. The news network CNN was carrying this coverage. They had a live feed of President Bush making a very uh, somber and significant speech memorializing the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Those who were watching the feed on CNN, though, began to hear another voice come in over the president's voice. It turns out that one of the CNN anchors, her name was Kira Phillips, while the president was speaking, had gone to use the restroom, but she had forgotten to turn off her mic. And so the president is making these comments, and here comes the voice of Kira Phillips, CNN anchor, and the first thing she says, she says, most men are, and then she used a word that we don't use in church, and ideally we don't use it outside of church either. And then she began to have a conversation with someone else in the restroom, and she said, well, not my husband, and she had some very complimentary things to say about her husband. The woman that she was talking with said something that's inaudible, and then Kira Phillips responded by saying, well, yeah. Brothers are supposed to take care of their sisters. And so, so far, so good. It's just awkward, nothing too horrific, right? But then she said this. She said, well, except for me. I really have to look out for my brother because his wife is a total control freak. It's at that moment that you can hear someone enter the restroom and she says, Kira, your mic is on. Turn it off. It's been on the air. And then the feed cuts out and we go back to President Bush. We love the hot mic. We love the hot mic, one, because it's funny. Two, because it makes us cringe. It's a little bit like some episodes of The Office where it's so uncomfortable you don't want to keep watching, but you can't look away. We love the hot mic because it reminds us that celebrities and politicians and news anchors are just like us. But here's the beautiful thing about the hot mic. The hot mic reveals who someone really is. We know what someone really thinks. We know what their true opinion is. We know how they really feel about a situation when they get caught on a hot mic. We don't get to know them, really get to know them when they are reading from the teleprompter, when they are giving the pre-rehearsed speech, or when they think that the microphone is on and everyone is listening. We get to know what someone really thinks. We get to know who they really are when they think the microphone is off and no one is listening. That is why I don't want you ever to hear me singing. I don't want you to know who I really am. The hot mic reveals who we really are. And I believe that we all have something in our lives that functions as a hot mic. And I believe that thing is prayer. I believe that prayer is the hot mic in each one of our lives. I think that's true for those of us who would call ourselves Christians and pray to the God of this Bible. I think that's true for people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. If you appeal to a higher power, to a deity, whatever it is you think that is, I believe that, that when you speak to God, that reveals your heart. It is a hot mic moment. See, for most of us, we spend most of our lives acting as if the microphone is on and the cameras are rolling. We spend most of our lives putting our best foot forward, trying to make a good impression, trying to 
I mean, in no uncertain terms, we wear masks, most of us, all of us, at one time or another. And literally, I know we are right now. But we wear, we wear non-literal masks as well because we want to put forth a certain perception of who we are and, and what we're like. But I believe that when we pray, when we speak to God, whatever our conception of God is, the mask comes off. It's why I'm calling this uh, sermon this morning, Beware of the Hot Mic. Because prayer reveals our heart. What we say when we talk to God says actually a lot about us. What we say when we talk to God says a lot about us. We're starting a new series this morning. We just come through Holy Week. Last week was Easter. We're going to start a new series, just a handful of weeks, uh, looking at the prayer, some of the prayers in the Bible. We're calling it Cries of Our Heart. We're going to see what some of the, the prayers in the Bible can teach us about who we are and how we relate to God. Now, for some of those who are astute or if you've been with us through the, most of this year, you may be thinking, Pastor Gary, uh, you already did three weeks on prayer back in January and February as part of the Back to Basics series. And if you are thinking that right now, I want to congratulate you and say thank you for remembering that. Because we did. When we set out the spring teaching calendar, life looked really different than it does right now. It was in the midst of total lockdown. The, the light at the end of the tunnel, which seems a lot brighter right now, was a lot smaller then. And I just felt this leading of God that this year we needed to lean into prayer. So this is not an accident. It is not that I've forgotten what I preached on back in January and February during our Back to Basics series. This was pre-planned. And even though things feel really different as we sit here now and the vaccines are getting rolled out, I still think God was in that planning. And so we're going to lean back into prayer because I believe, again, it is the most important thing we can do. So we're going to start a series today called Cries of Our Heart, looking at some of the prayers of the Bible. The first passage we're looking at today is the one I just read in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. In this passage, I believe that Jesus is giving us a hot mic moment for two men who have gone up to the temple to pray. Two men go to the temple to pray. They both pray to God. They're not aware that we're listening in, but Jesus gives us the privilege of listening in to what they have to say. And what we find as we hear their prayers is that they reveal who they truly are. Their prayers reveal their heart. Two men, two approaches, two appeals, two cries of their heart, two very different responses from the God that they are praying to. So uh, we're just going to look at these two responses uh, for to these two, excuse me, these two prayers, these two cries for the message today. And we're going to uh, characterize both of them as cries of the heart. The first one is this. The first cry, the first prayer we see in this passage is a cry of confidence. It is a cry of confidence. We're told in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, this is verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed Thus, And we just need to hang out for one minute in this idea of Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? So when, when Jesus says in this passage, or when Luke records Jesus saying in this passage that the Pharisee stood by himself, that is actually a physical representation of what the Pharisees were all about. The word Pharisee actually means separated one. They were the most influential and one of the most highly respected political sects of first century Judaism. They were the conservative stream of Jewish people at the time of Jesus. Their, their, they, their whole goal was to conserve the religion of their forefathers, the Jewish religion of their forefathers. And so they adhered strictly to what was known as the Torah, the law of Moses, 
the law that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai, and they added a bunch of rules on top of that called the oral tradition that had also been passed down over the centuries. The Pharisees, what we need to know, what we need to recognize is that for most of us, if we've been around church for a little while, or if we just are reading Luke's gospel straight through and we get to chapter 18, most of us don't have a good impression of the Pharisees. We know that Jesus went after the Pharisees. He was most critical of the Pharisees. He was harshest with the Pharisees more so than any other group of people that he engaged with. But for his audience in this moment, who are listening to Jesus tell this parable, that is not how they would have felt about the Pharisees. They would have heard Pharisee and they would have thought respected, highly religious, super spiritual, uh, probably blessed, and close to God. They had a good reputation amongst the common Jewish people at that time. So here's a Pharisee. He's gone up to the temple and Jesus says this is his prayer, starting in verse 11. God, I thank you. And that's a pretty good start, but it kind of goes downhill from there. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he starts by addressing God and he says, I thank you. But then the rest of the prayer is really just a commentary on his resume. It is not really a prayer. He's really talking to himself. If you count the eyes, at least in the ESV, six times he says, I. One of the commentators uh, I studied preparing for this sermon said, uh, two men went up to the temple to pray, but only one actually prayed. This is not really a prayer. It is a recitation of his successes, of his achievements, and the good standing that he has in life. He is coming to God saying, basically, God, you have given me a lot of good things, but I'm going to go ahead and take credit for them. He is basically saying the sense of this, this prayer is God You are fortunate to have someone like me. You need someone like me, God. I've done pretty well for myself. Aren't you pleased with who I am? The cry of his heart is a cry of confidence. And it is a cry of confidence in what? In himself. It is just dripping with pride. It is a cry of confidence. It is a cry of confidence in himself. When he prays, we see his heart and he thinks pretty highly of himself. In 1990, uh, the Chicago Bulls were playing a road basketball game in one of the the premier cosmopolitan cities, I want to say in this country, but probably in the world. They were in Cleveland, Ohio, for a road basketball game. I think it was March. It was 1990. Uh, Michael Jordan was playing for the Bulls at the time, and it ended up being his single highest scoring game in his entire career. Incredible, illustrious career. Greatest basketball player of all time. That night in Cleveland, Michael Jordan poured in 69 points. Most he ever scored in a game. And wouldn't you know, that display of greatness happened where? In Cleveland. Because it's where great things happen. In the city of Cleveland. After the game, the uh, media was predictably uh, enamored with what they had just seen. Uh, They couldn't stop talking about the transcendence and the greatness of the performance that Michael Jordan had just given. And, uh, and what I failed to mention is that at the end of that game, Michael Jordan's rookie teammate, Stacey King, he came in at the end of the game, happened to get fouled, and he made one free throw. He scored one point on the night. So after the game, the media is all over Michael Jordan about what a phenomenal performance it was. And, 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 and so that the, the news, news can hear, Stacey King speaks up, the rookie who scored one point. And he said, I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I 
combined to score 70 points. That's kind of the prayer that the Pharisee is giving in verses 11 and 12 of this passage. He's taking all the things that are evidences of God's goodness and grace and kindness in his life, and he is saying, I'll always remember this as the life that I did really well for myself. And I don't want to make us too uncomfortable, but it is really easy for us to come to God with a similar kind of approach. It is really easy, especially in a place like the Bay Area, like Silicon Valley, so many of us have tasted so much of what the world calls success. It is so easy to come to God and to come to him standing on our achievements and our accomplishments and our standing in life. It is so easy to come to God with an attitude of, God, you're kind of fortunate to have me. Look at the good life that I've made for myself. Look at where I live. Look at the job that I have, how I'm able to provide for my family. Look at for how well-behaved my kids are and the good school that they go to. But as Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, in light of God's holiness, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. And we can see this attitude in the way that we pray. There are a lot of us here this morning who are like, I know, I know who are like, Pastor Gary, that's not me. That's not my heart. That's not how I approach God. I've been doing this long enough. I know how God is. I know what his Bible says. I don't come to him with that kind of attitude. But I think if we look at the way we pray, more, more often than we realize, this is how we are coming to God. Because if most of our prayers are of the variety, God, give me this. God, fix this. God, I need you to do this. God, why haven't you acted yet here? God, this is what I need. Do you see the heart that underlies that? It is a heart that is saying, God, I have earned this. I deserve you to do these things. I deserve for you to do these things for me. I, I bring something to the table, God, such that I need you to do these things for me. Even our prayers of bargaining, our prayers are cries of confidence. That's not a biblical category. It kind of sounds like it. Prayers of lament, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of bargaining. That one's not in the Bible. But we do the bargaining prayer. You know the bargaining prayer that I'm talking about? God, if you do this for me, then I will, whatever it is. If you do this for me, I will go back to church, God. If you do this for me, I'll stop skipping church, God. If you do this for me, I'll tithe more. I'll, I'll treat my wife better. I'll, I'll stop doing this. Those are the bargaining prayers. And implicit in the bargaining prayer is what? That you have something to offer God. That you have the power of yourself to do something that God needs. What you are saying in that moment is, God, if you do this for me, I have the power to do something you want me to do. I'm capable of doing something. I have the power within myself to change or to do something different, but that is not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is that we are powerless to do it. We are powerless to do anything on our own. So it is very easy. Even though we read this prayer from the Pharisee and we think, what a jerk. I think oftentimes we come to God with this attitude much more frequently than we even realize. It's very easy to come to God with a cry of confidence. But the second prayer we're going to see in this passage, the second thing that we're going to see is a cry of helplessness. A cry of helplessness. So the Pharisee prays a prayer of confidence. The tax collector prays a prayer of helplessness. Uh, verse 13. But the tax collector, and we just need to hang out with tax collector for a minute. Tax collectors were probably the lowest, they were probably the most despised, 
most hated class of people in all of first century Judaism. The Israel at that time was occupied by Rome. Rome imposed taxes on the Jewish nation. And the way that they collected those taxes is they hired Jewish people, ethnic Jews, to be their tax collectors. And Rome told the tax collectors how much they needed in tax revenue. And the way that the tax collectors made a living was that anything else they could extract from their brothers and sisters above and beyond what Rome required is what they lived on. They were hated. They were seen as traitors. They were greedy and dishonest and usually were very wealthy because they were, they were living off of the backs and hard work of the Jewish people who they were stealing taxes from. As one commentator says, this is a bit of a lengthy quote, uh, but it just it paints the picture of the, of the view of a tax collector beautifully. It said, an honest tax collector in principle, a starving tax collector. A Jew who collected taxes was a cause of disgrace. Expelled from the synagogue and disqualified as a judge or witness in court. Much of a tax collector rendered a house clean. Jews were forbidden from receiving money, including alms from tax collectors. Since tax revenues were deemed robbery, Jewish contempt of tax collectors is epitomized in the ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity, a ruling with which the houses of Hillel and Shammai, who normally stood poles apart, both agreed. Tax collectors were tangible reminders of the Roman domination, detested alike for its injustice and Gentile uncleanness. So as Jesus is telling this story, those who are listening to him tell this parable are like Pharisee, close to God, blessed. Tax collector, as far away from God as you can get and cursed. And here's the prayer that Jesus lets us listen into on the hot mic of the tax collector. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Again, we had a physical picture of the Pharisee standing, far, uh, uh, standing by himself. Here's the tax collector, standing far off. He's socially distant. Respect. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. That is a, that is a, a physical posture of humility. A physical posture of total humility. And all he says is, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The English doesn't pick it up, but in Greek, the sinner or a sinner uh, has the article. It's definite. So what he really is saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. As one commentator said, he sees himself as the highest of all sinners, as the greatest of all sinners. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is a cry of helplessness. It is a posture of humility. And can we please see that this is the cry of someone who is what? Who is broken. This is the prayer of someone who has been through life and life has not gone the way they have wanted. This is the prayer of someone who has been through hard things, who has made bad decisions, who has done things that they regret, who has broken relationships, who has suffered. This is the prayer of someone who life has not turned out the way that they wanted to. It is the prayer of someone who is broken and has seen in a mirror clearly how wretched and sinful they are. And his only hope is to throw himself on the mercy of God. It is a cry of helplessness. There was a very prominent pastor in the last century, uh, pastor and leader in evangelical Christianity. Uh, his name was Harold John Ockengay. And he was the lead senior minister at the historic Park Street Church in downtown Boston. Uh, when 
Dr. Akengay was at the end of his life. Uh, he was dying of cancer. And uh, he called the elders of Park Street Church to come anoint him with oil and pray over him, as James 5 tells them to. Uh, he could hardly speak. He had lost a ton of weight. He was confined to his bed. Uh, when the elders were coming, his wife asked the young man who was attending to him while he was sick to put him in a suit and tie, which tells you a little bit about his dignity. So the elders of Park Street Church arrived at his home, and there he was in bed, barely 100 pounds, in a three-piece suit and a tie. And when they saw him, they began to try to encourage him. One of the elders said to him, Dr. Akinge, it is not too long now, and you will hear well done, good and faithful servant. He said, after all, you were the senior minister of Park Street Church for 32 years. Think of all the lives you touched. Think of all the good you did in that time. Another elder chimed in. He said, Dr. Akinge, you were the president of Gordon College. You founded Fuller Seminary and were, was its first president. You founded Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and you were its first president. Think of all the good you did. Think of all the lives you touched in those jobs. Well done. Another one said, Dr. Akinge, you gave Billy Graham his start. You were close friends with him. You, you helped found the National Association of Evangelicals. Another one said, Dr. Akinge, you helped start Christianity Today magazine. They went around like this. And then the, they got to the last elder, who was also the youngest elder, and I just love this. They all were saying, Dr. Akinge, Dr. Akinge. The last elder comes to his turn to speak, and he says this. He says, well, Harold, I suggest when you meet the master, you simply say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as the story goes, it was at that moment that Dr. Akinge's eyes welled with tears and they began to roll down his tree, cheek. He had found no comfort in the replaying of his successes and his achievements and his accolades. What had brought him comfort in his last moments on this earth was realizing that he brings nothing to God, that he has nothing to offer and that his only hope is to appeal to the God of mercy, to have mercy on him who was a sinner. Part of why I wanted to preach this text and these prayers as we start this series on cries of our heart as we're coming on the heels of Easter is because I believe in the prayer of the tax collector. I believe in these seven words. We find at some level the, the essential, the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God in many ways is encapsulated in these seven words. It is what we celebrated last week at Easter. If you, if, you are, if you came through Easter and you were like, I'm not exactly sure what it means to be a Christian or what it means to follow God, this is a great place to start. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is a cry of helplessness. Uh, in our If My People prayer time this week, uh, one of the wonderful saints who I see is here today, she prayed something and I had to open my eyes and write it down because it was so good. She said, uh, there is nothing we can do on our own except make a mess. The prayer of the Pharisee in this text is so offensive because it is such a distortion of the reality that our relationship is with God. We bring nothing to God. We offer him nothing. There is nothing we can do in our own to make God love us or accept us. We are all sinners. We are all broken and our only hope 
is like this tax collector did to appeal to God's mercy to cover our sins. The prayer of the tax collector is what we cry when everything has been stripped away. It is what we cry when the camera is turned off, when the teleprompter stops, when there's no pre-recorded comments. It is what we cry when we see in a mirror clearly how broken and helpless we are. It is a cry of complete helplessness. When we know our helplessness, we throw ourselves on the only one who can help us. And then, verse 14, the close of the passage, as Jesus always does, or as Jesus normally does, the expected outcome is is not what we get. Jesus tells those who are listening to him and who would have thought the Pharisee, he's the guy, the tax collector, he's the worst. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. He says that the tax collector, not the Pharisee, is the one who went home justified. And that word justified doesn't just mean forgiven. It gets at the idea of a new standing before God. We got two cries to God. We got two revelations of two different hearts. And we got one that was justified. Because what we say to God says a lot about us. What we say to God says a lot about us. As we wrap this up, I just want to point out one more thing in this passage. The word that the tax collector uses, the word that Jesus has the tax collector use for merciful, that is not the typical word for mercy that is found in the New Testament. There's a word that's used all over the New Testament when mercy is referred to. This word is only found here and in Hebrews 2.17, twice. In Hebrews 2.17, it is translated as propitiation. That's not a word that we use a lot, but propitiation is the idea of covering over a wrong or making atonement for a wrong. And that word, this very specific Greek word, was used exclusively in reference to what the high priest of Israel did on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest of Israel would go into the holiest place of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and offer a sacrifice to atone for, offer propitiation for, the sins of the people of Israel. And here is Jesus putting the language of the high priest of Israel in the mouth of a tax collector. And the tax collector is saying, God, make propitiation for my sin. He is saying, make atonement for my sin. He is saying, cover my sin, God. And what we see when we look at Hebrews 2.17, the only other place that that word is used is that in Hebrews 2.17, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the true high priest. Jesus is the one who once and for all went into the holy place and made the once and for all sacrifice when he shed his blood on the cross that once and for all covers our sin, makes propitiation for our sin, atones for our sin. And here is the tax collector pointing to Jesus with the word he uses for merciful, saying, my only hope, God, in my helpless state is that you cover my sin. And the promise of this book, the promise of God's word to each and every one of us is that for anyone who can pray along with that tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The promise is that we will receive God's mercy. We don't have to wonder whether he will respond. How we talk to God says a lot about us. And so it is my prayer this morning that each one of us might be able to say, God, merciful to me, a sinner. 
See, I said there, there was a cry of confidence and there was a cry of helplessness in this passage, but really, it's two cries of confidence. The first was a cry of confidence in himself. The second was a cry of confidence in God, the only one who is worthy of our confidence. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it convicts us when we need to be convicted. We thank you for how it encourages us when we need to be encouraged. I pray that you would do each of that for those of us who are here this morning. We thank you again for the privilege it is to be together in your house. And I pray, God, that, that the seed of your word would fall on good ground. I pray that we would not be unchanged by this time we have spent encountering you. Go with us, we ask, as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before I have you stand for the benediction, I just want to remind you, again, normally we would have a time of response where, where you could come down and meet with one of our prayer counselors. Because of the season we find ourselves in, we're going to hold off on doing that. But we are here and we are available. You can reach out to us at prayer at alcf.net. We have a prayer team who, who they live to pray for the prayer requests of this, this congregation. You can also reach out to us at info at alcf.net if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus uh, we would love to speak with you. Uh, with that, if you would rise for the benediction. Thanks for joining us online. Thank you for those of you who are here in person. We look forward to seeing you next week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you are prayed for and you are sent.